podcast this week, it's Ready, Steady, Cook, as Pixie star Olivia Cook pops by for a chat. Plus, the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast, I would like to thank Chris Pratt, because while Twitter has been piling on him for reasons, they've overlooked one crucial fact. This podcast is, in fact, hosted by the worst Chris. Fiendish. <laughs> Clever. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, a.k.a. The Worst Chris and the Second Worst Hewitt. And welcome to the Empire Podcast. We're in a state of excitement right now because we are just, as we record this, nine days away from Halloween. And no, no, no absolutely no, not. Chris, no, you can't no, do this every week. Shut absolutely it down now. No, uh-uh. Shut it down now. Oh, no, here it comes. Halloween. 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 Nine more days to Halloween. Empire Podcast. Sorry, I don't know. I don't know where they came from. I don't know how it happens. Blame an evil Irish toy maker. That always works for me. Anyway, this week I'm joined by three colleagues. Count them three. Of such lethal cunning. And given developments at a high-profile magazine recently, I'm making sure they all keep their hands where I can see them. We're joined, of course, by our geek queen, Helen O'Hara. Hello. Nerd so- twat, James Dyer. <laughs> you really are the worst, Chris. <laughs> you are the worst, Burr. And of course, look at him. The human padding to himself. The nicest man in showbiz. It's no longer Michael Palin after he killed those dudes. It's Ben Travis. Hello, Ben Travis. Hi, everyone. How's it going? (laughs) (laughs) The Empire Podcast would like it to be known that Michael Palin has not, in fact, killed those dudes. And he remains (laughs) the nicest guy alive. But Ben's the nicest guy in show. Thanks, Chris. Does that work? Oh, somehow. Does it? I'll say that. Otherwise, I I could kill Michael Palin. He's the youngest guy in showbiz. Maybe that's it. (laughs) Ben is the youngest guy in showbiz. He's basically at this point a fetus with headphones. (laughs) (laughs) And yet he makes more sense than any of us. What's what's going on on there? What's up with that? How are we all? Have we, have any of us inadvertently masturbated during a Zoom team call this week? Is that, has that happened? As your lawyer, the answer to this is no. No, no, uh, for absolutely you, not, Chris. We you. use Teams at Empire. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and I don't think it was inadvertent either, was it? <laughs> Whoops. Oh, no. I've accidentally started wanking again. How did that happen? You were just tucking in your shirt, Chris. That's yeah. what I yes. was doing. That's, that's it. Okay. That's what I was doing. Uh, not me. I, I don't do that sort of thing obviously. Mm. Uh, Anyway, welcome one, welcome all. Um, We don't have a lot of time this week, so you will be Oh no! No fan section, what a shame! Bereft. Yes! Draught to learn that the three fact structure this week has been retired, but only retired. It's it's gone. It's gone this week. But it will be back next week, yes. Uh, so that's that's gonna be good for that. Well done everybody. You're very, very excited. Do you have facts lined up for this week anyway, just in I case? Mean- only in the loosest possible sense. Not really. <laughs> I, as usual, had an extremely half-baked thing I found on Google about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, that was the working title for the section. <laughs> extremely half-baked <laughs> things we found on Google 10 minutes ago. But someone else came up with three fact structures. So that will be back next week. That is my threat. That is my mm. promise to you, the listeners. Ew. But more importantly, the colleagues of such lethal cunning. That is my threat slash promise to you. It will be back next week. But instead, we're going to kick off the show, not with how are you and how do you do because I don't care, quite frankly, but the listener question. Right. Listener question this week is related to something that happened on last week's show. Not Kevin Bacon 
not knowing who Ray Harryhausen is, which caused quite a stir on Twitter. I had three tweets about it. But at some point during the interview last week with Kevin Bacon, uh, he said, I, I was talking to him about working with directors again, and he was talking about how certain directors like to have their ensembles, like to have their repertory companies that they they have around them. And so at not Marcus B slid into my DMs on Twitter and asked the following question. Kevin Bacon said in his interview that some directors have their ensembles. 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 I'm telling Duolingo on you. And the entire nation of France. I'm doing well, really, really well with you, Lingo, but ensemble means together, doesn't it? So that's um, why so I would say, for example, nous avons regardé la télé ensemble, which means we Fred, watched yeah. the television together. We did. Just to be clear, so, are you actually doing Duolingo or are you just playing Marvel Puzzle Quest in French? I've <laughs> oh, <yeah>, been <laughs> a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> or are you having nope. a stroke? Yeah, either of these. Yeah. You know, that's, that's deleted, Jimbo. I deleted Marvel Puzzle Quest. Yes. It has gone. It is gone wow. from my phone. So strong. You're in recovery. So Do you have a chip to say how many days non-Puzzle Quest you are? <laughs> I don't think about it. I really, I genuinely don't think about it anymore. You seem to have broken out a cold sweat, Chris, as I'm watching you. What's happening? <laughs> <laughs> I don't, I don't think about it. I don't, I don't, never. I'm trying to, I'm trying to make you and Helen match on the screen so I can, I can get the, the good he's, stuff. He's, um, he's got, uh, yeah, he's got his Marvel gum that he chews every time he's yeah. to hit. Yes. I do. Nick Fury or Rhett. Nick, Nick or Rhett. I don't know. Whatever. Yeah, anyway, so uh, anyway, the question is, it comes from at not Marcus B and I'll get past the ensemble. Ensemble? Ensemble. Ensemble. Oh my God. Ensemble. Oh anyway, the question is, Mike Flanagan finds places in his stuff for the likes of Carla Gugino and Henry Thomas. Wes Anderson has Bill Murray, Willem Dafoe, etc. Whose ensemble is the team oh Empire's favourite? In fairness, after... The Haunting of Bly Manor, uh, <laughs> his 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 ensemble may be slightly smaller. If you've uh, if you if you've heard the uh, the accents on display there, some of them were very good. One of them not was all. very much not. I'm not going to name yes. and shame, but oh my god, seriously, no Trust name and shame. Now this name and shame. No, no, I'm saying it might or may not have been Elliot. <laughs> <laughs> my, my bigger problem, and this is not a spoiler for The Haunting of Blind Manor, but my bigger problem with his character was his office didn't fit his job title. What was his what actual job mean? title? First of all, okay, <laughs> his no. His office didn't fit his job Derailing title. Derailing the question because this is far more interesting. Okay, yeah. what was his job title, Helen? His job title, somebody called him said he was a QC. Not just uh-huh. a lawyer, but a QC. That office is not a QC's office. So what, what are you is saying? Too small, too big? Too, yeah. Um, too modern, uh, too unlikely. Uh, it you appeared could be to be a in modern a sort of QC. London. There are very few of them, very vanishingly few, who have a modern office. They all work in chambers. All those buildings were built in the 19th century. It, it just didn't look right. And, and just the whole setup was wrong. Modern QC sounds like a crime procedural that Chris Hewitt would get extremely invested in. <laughs> oh my god! And no one else would ever watch. Oh no! Like honestly, the the thing is that like British movies about lawyers or British TV shows about lawyers are generally nonsense on a whole other level. Like you think that the shows about cops are bad, but then you see one about lawyers and you realise like that was gritty realism. I mean. Like Judge John Deeds ran for however many seasons here and you literally had a judge going off and like investigating cases and talking to witnesses, which is beyond unthinkable. Like it cannot happen. It's absolutely forbidden. And then like there was a case where he had his daughter and his ex-wife or maybe his lover, I forget, or both in front of him on like on opposing sides. Again, what? 
it's madness. It That's justice, baby. Yeah. Justice John Deed style. What about the I one just, where what about, he, he... What about This Life, Helen? This Life. I didn't watch This Life. Wow. I don't think he was in court much, though, was he? Not a lot, no. Many in bed. Mm. Anyway, yes, I would, I would absolutely watch Total QC. That would be... Is that what you said, Ben? <laughs> I would watch it was that modern show. QC. It gives modern it a bit of an QC. edge. Modern QC. Well, QC wow. with a cutting edge. Gives you the spin-off potential for non-modern QC. Ah, the prequel. Yeah. Old-fashioned QC. <laughs> Did any of you ever watch the British version of Law and Order, Law and Order UK, which starred with Jamie Bamber, Bradley Walsh, and Apollo? I, I watched the first one. Yes. But did that have Freema Aggerman in did. as well? It did. So it's a it's a Doctor Who spin-off, effectively. Oh, Battlestar Galactica, yeah. <laughs> Battles, yes. As Battlestar Galactica meets uh, Doctor Who, it was absolutely incredible. No, it was terrible. But it's the only Law & Order spin-off that doesn't use the iconic theme tune. But it does use the dung-dung. Yes, it uses the dung-dung. Mm. The dung-dung, but not the dun 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 But it has a dreadful kind of... I don't know, because it was British. Maybe someone had just seen Brassed Off, and so they have a brass band doing the theme tune. It's fucking terrible. Ran for nine series. Anyway, <laughs> I said at the beginning of this question, we didn't have a lot of time this week, and we have then spent four hours talking about other stuff. So the question Nonsense. is, yeah. which ensemble is the Team Empire's favourite? Which director ensemble, or it doesn't have to be a director ensemble, it can be other ensembles, uh, is the best ensemble? So if it's not a director ensemble, what is it? Well, like uh, just actors hanging out and being awesome. Like Adam Sandler's ensemble, for example, right? So Adam Sandler has different directors on different films. But if you mm. watched the, the four-star masterpiece, it is Hubie Halloween recently, you would have seen loads I mean, of people who have popped up in Adam Sandler movies over the years. You know, the likes of obviously Rob Schneider and Alan Covert sure, sure. and, uh, or is it Covert, but Alan Covert and Kevin James and people like that. And Maya Rudolph, mm. all, you know, his, his kind of peeps. And uh, so they pop up in, in movies constantly, don't they? They do, yeah. They wouldn't be my favourite. And also, I don't think Four Star was where we came down on Hubie Halloween, just for the record, in oh, case anyone's out there listening. you want to downgrade it from five? Seems strange. No. Helen has a tendency I, to do that. I, I, I'm I just saying. Wait, uh, hang on. We're not getting there again. All right. We, I thought we just reached non-ton after the trial of the Chicago 7, but if you're going to start this again... It's, it's an entente. Mm-hmm. Anyway, how about the Coen brothers? I'm just going to start the bidding there. How about them Coen brothers? How about brothers? them Coen brothers? But they how get, you know, George that? Clooney repeatedly, Francis McDormand repeatedly, John Turturro, Steve Buscemi, or Buscemi, as I believe he likes to call it himself. <laughs> Steve, Steve Buscemi John, is also a Steve Adam Buscemi. Sandler regular, of course. And uh, I wonder which one he prefers. I wonder. I <laughs> hope it's the Coen brothers. There I said it. You know what? It. I hope it's not. Okay. <laughs> I, I imagine an Adam Sandler set is a much more relaxed set than a Coen Brothers set. Maybe less demanding. No, I reckon the Coen Brothers are kicking back all the time with a brewski and Adam Sandler is mm. over there like stressing over every comic line. We need line. the shots. <laughs> yeah, it's like being in Uncut Gems. That's what an Adam, That's Adam, what Sandler, an Adam like. Sandler film yeah. is like. Yeah. Good call, Helen. Thanks, Well, well done, you. Worst Chris. Anyone else? I am, of course, going to take this opportunity to utterly derail this question, oh, God. Uh, as is my way. <sighs> First of all, by saying that the correct answer to this question is, of course, the Sorkin players. Oh, Jesus Absolutely. Uh, but I shall use this as an opportunity else. to get a head start on news by saying that the entirety of the West Wing, all seven seasons of the West Wing, landed on all four this week You appear on to Wednesday. have confused this podcast with no, no, this is important, the pilot Chris. TV podcast. 
This is a public service announcement. It transcends podcasts. Obviously, we we have been and will be again talking about this on the Pilot TV podcast. Terry White, our very own Terry White. What's the website? You wanted to actually communicate this to a proper audience. I, I understand this. Yes, I, I can yeah. see this. Yeah. So Watched just it keep... for the very first time, and it was transcended. That was on the most recent podcast. So please Did listen to Terry's reaction to the West Wing. She may have done as it happens, but for anyone out there who still hasn't seen this, possibly because I keep banging on about it, it is all on all four. It is all 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 four. All on all four. All four. All on now but it's not on all um, fours to be clear that would be it's weird it's not on all fours you may <laughs> watch it on all fours on i don't recommend legs. it mm. <laughs> but but yes all seven scenes of the west wing all four now painfully i must agree with james right now that this is important news and it is yes. the greatest show ever so you know and i don't like to say that but it is true yes yes it is yes, Chris. It is. It's even better than blue bloods yes does it have any vampire slayers in it though yes it is yes it does babe. it does oh that's cool you start watching, look out for the Vampire Slayers, Yeah, and I think you'll have a, a really good time. Oh, cool. 100% true. There is Donna the Vampire Slayer fan fiction out there on the internet, and I've read it, and it's extraordinary. But uh, So yes, it does exist. <laughs> you think you wrote it. <laughs> that, but Sorkin no, doesn't have fiction. that much of an ensemble. There's not much that, that much overlap between his different projects. Like, he has an incredible ensemble on The West Wing, but that's like a show's cast. And I know he has some people who carry over, but not that many. What's happening? He has he has the Sorkin players who he comes back to time and time again. So Josh Molina, obviously Martin Sheen was in the American President and the West Wing. Bradley Whitford, he's used a number mm-hmm. of times. He was in Studio 60, the West Wing. He was in the stage production of A Few Good Men. Uh, Jeff Daniels, I guess, Newsroom and Steve Jobs, that's kind of the only he's been yeah. over there. He's Felicity Huffman a couple of times. Timothy Busfield is one who, again, he's used in on stage and on screen a number of times. Um, so he does stop come back this. to me. I mean, Josh Molina's a but friend his of his. Screen, so. <laughs> please, please but he's like, this. this is a film podcast and his films do not have much over overlap of players no it's true but i you know the west wing transcends all screens oh, clark greg clark, clark greg could please, be classed as a talking player um sports please, night please west wing us. and a few good men the play not the film dear god have you finished <laughs> <laughs> thank no, god never finished uh, i shall now recite oh. the screenplays beginning with the pilots <laughs> oh dear god uh but in terms of tv if we're going to stick with tv this isn't for example as as cut and dried as the entire cast of heidi high showing up in Urang, my lord or indeed oh dr beaching which was a very deliberate thing that they did back in the day who 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 indeed can forget that <laughs> <laughs> oh i don't know all of uh-huh. them, you know. So you got Paul Shane, you've got Sue Pollard, you've got the, the other ones that fella, the little you chalky have been fella. watching. You have been watching. Crazy, you know. <laughs> wouldn't the West Wing? Wouldn't the West Wing be improved if it had a you have been watching style credit sequence at the end? Waving no. at the camera. <laughs> I mean, it practically <laughs> does sometimes. Let's be honest, it, it kind of does. Isn't it so bizarre that Predator has that? I know! That's, this is genuinely true. The Predator has a you have been watching at the end of it, the most unlikely <laughs> film in movie history. And it just goes, goes, and Shane Black, and he cocks a grin at the camera and tips his comic He's up. got a Sergeant Rock comic, and everyone, like, everyone's grinning at the camera, except for Arnold, who's yes, not grinning at the camera, Arnold. because presumably he went, no, I'm not doing that, it's stupid. <laughs> You're breaking the fourth wall. What are you doing now? Get to the chopper. He wasn't oh. wrong. Even Anna does it. I like the Dylan one is my favourite, where you've got Carmen and stuff like that. Just really sort of like suave, kind of head bob and grin while holding the machine gun. They should have had Kevin Peter Hall do it. They should have had the Predator turn to camera with a big cheesy grin and a, like a big smile. A, a big double defo. Oh my God. It's the best film. Anyway, Helen, I think you were trying to tell us something. 
yes, I was going to suggest Joss Whedon if we're like just merrily trumping into TV already, for God's sake. The Whedon players. The Whedon yes. players. Obviously, Nathan Fillion comes up in a bunch of stuff. Um, uh, he was in Much Ado About Nothing on the big screen, but obviously Buffy and obviously Firefly on the small screen. I think he's worked with him a, a couple of other times. Oh, and Doctor Horrible as well. What am I thinking? Mm. Amy Acker's come up again mm-hmm. and again. Gina Torres crossed over. Gina yes. Torres crossed over. What you McCuller, who was one of the Slayerettes in season seven of Buffy and then was a waitress in Avengers. You know, there's a lot of it. And yeah. also, did you notice, I, I was watching the other week, 2015 movie, uh, Avengers Age of Ultron. Never heard of it. And mate. some of the cast in that also appear in an early Joss Whedon film called... The Avengers. Have you noticed this? Oh, that's amazing. No. Robert Downey Jr., so Chris Evans, Mark Ruffalo, Scarlett oh Johansson, God. Jeremy Renner. Well, I mean, that definitely sounds Hemsworth. like the best ensemble in that case. It's a good ensemble, actually. I think they pretty hang good. On, are you saying, mm. oh, hang on. Have we arrived after all this? The MCU is <laughs> <laughs> the best ensemble. No, my We're God. on point. We're on brand. <laughs> We're on message. Good Lord. It's very much oh. moving forward. <laughs> well, no, wait. We've forgotten one of the major answers. Yes. You you suggested one comedy ensemble. You suggested that Adam Sandler's group are quite good. I would put it to quite you, sir, good. that Christopher Guest. <gasps> has a better comedy ensemble. That's right. Yes, correct. Mm. Helen has blundered around and found one of the right answers oh to this God. question. <laughs> <laughs> Should we name some of those people, Helen? Who, who pops up in Chris Guest movies? Michael McKean, Harry Shearer, Fred Willard, Parker Posey, James Lynch, Catherine O'Hara, of course, my beloved mm. cousin, probably, Eugene Levy, <laughs> uh, John Michael Higgins, uh, Stifler's mom. Stifler's mom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as the actress is known. <laughs> Jennifer Coolidge, thank you. Jennifer Coolidge. Amazing, Stifler's amazing, Stifler's mom people. has got it going on. Yep, that's a good answer. That's a very good answer. Thank you. I've got a couple of movie ones. Uh, I am going to shout out the Kevin Smith ensemble because obviously he mm-hmm. started making out films with his friends and then he carried on making films with his friends. So you get Jason Mewes all the time. You get Brian O'Halloran all the time mm. as different Hicks brothers. Uh, <laughs> Affleck is always popping up. Affleck was a bomb in Phantoms, yo. He was the bomb in Phantoms, yo. And it was basically the best thing in James Silent Bob reboot was the, uh, was the yeah. Ben Affleck reunion. Really good uh, scene. Joey Lauren Adams. Such a good scene. Mm. Uh, yeah, Joey Lauren Adams in a bunch of those as well. And another one that I like is the sort of small but, but growing Bong Joon-ho ensemble. So you if, mm. if you're watching a Bong Joon-ho film, chances are Song Kang-ho is in there. He's in, obviously, Parasite. He's in Host. He's in uh, Memories of Murder. He's in Snowpiercer. Tilda Swinton is becoming a Bong Joon-ho regular in the mm. most uh, entertaining way. Uh, Duna Bay tends to pop up in quite a few of his films. She's in Barking Dogs Never Bite. She's in The Host as well. Shout out The Bong Hive, the inner circle of The Bong Hive. Yeah, it reminds me, as Craig Soller, for example, is also someone who is kind of fairly new in the scene, but just uses the same people over and over again and just finds different interesting roles for them. And uh, it's interesting the way that he'll maybe also get new people and add them to the ensemble as well, in the same way that you know, Wes Anderson uh, might do, in the way that Paul Thomas Anderson does, for example, also. Uh, but for example, he's used, obviously, Jennifer Carpenter, Don Johnson, Vince Vaughn, you know, they pop up 
you know, in Drag to Cross Concrete and Brawl Cell Block 99, Udo Kier, people like that. So uh, Tarantino does this an awful lot. There's the, the Tarantino mm-hmm. players, the likes of um, uh, Michael Madsen and Tim Roth and Uma Thurman, although not recently, Sam Jackson, Harvey Keitel, people like that who just show up again and again uh, in these in the Tarantino movies. And uh, he always mm-hmm. finds really Zoe interesting Bell. uses for them. Zoe Bell, mm-hmm. um, Spike Lee, Tim Burton... John Carpenter is really, really good at using people over and over again, especially in his earlier movies, the likes of Adrian Barbeau and Charles Cyphers and Donald Pleasance, of course, Keith David, Kurt Russell. Uh, but I think this is mainly more about ensembles rather than maybe directors star combinations. Uh, I was looking mm-hmm. earlier to see how many times Hitchcock had used the same actors over and over again. And surprisingly, not that many. He had a lot of actors who starred in his earlier kind of silent movies. But once he shifted to America, started making movies in color. Yes, he started using people like Cary Grant and James Stewart a number of yeah. times. But he didn't really have a number of supporting players that he would turn to. No, not in the same way. He wanted he wanted to go back to Ingrid Bergman again and Grace Kelly again, and their life circumstances made it impossible. Because um, obviously Ingrid Bergman took up with um, Robert Rossellini and had to leave Hollywood because she became a scandalous figure. <laughs> and um, Grace no. Kelly married a prince and for some reason didn't want to keep making films or wasn't allowed to keep making films. So uh, so he would have worked with both of them more. He, he asked both of them back and they weren't able to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Lee uses a number of the same actors over and over again mm. as well, often in vastly different roles. Paul Thomas Anderson, as I mentioned before, especially in his early days, you know, the likes of Laura Walters and Philip Seymour Hoffman and John C. Riley would pop up constantly in his movies. Um, less so of late. But I, I actually, I do love this. I love that when you have actors who just pop up again and again, even if it's not necessarily an ensemble, but even if it's someone like, you know, he died a few weeks ago, we mentioned him on the podcast, but say Dan Hicks, who would pop up now and again and Sam Raimi movies and you but you know it's just they're just nice people that you know that you can kind of cling to go oh I really like that kind of thing and it's it always makes me feel really warm inside when clearly they've got on well with directors and Mm. bagged some gigs Mm. for them going forward uh, which is always nice so if you think we've missed anything or overlooked anything um, do write in and let us know for example last week's question was the best ever use of prosthetics on a human character in a film and a couple of people wrote in pointing out things we overlooked one the elephant man and David Lynch's The Elephant Man. Yeah. I thought of that halfway through and then forgot to say it. Well done, man. How convenient for you, Helen O'Hara. Mm. How convenient. Since I'm innocent of this crime, sir, I find it decidedly inconvenient that the gun was never found. Uh, and what else? Someone else suggested the uh, incredible melting man, Emil, in Robocop, which is tremendous. And that actually might have been the right answer, <laughs> I think, when all things are said and done. Definitely the gooeyest prosthetics on any human person. Very much so. Very. I mean, much that's so. a whole other question. You know, then you get into the fly and you get into Ooh, yeah. the thing, and it gets really complicated. <laughs> maybe we'll do it another time. The gooeyest prosthetic. <laughs> uh, maybe, maybe because oh, hang on. What date's today? What date's today? Twenty second. Twenty second. So this is the twenty third. So next week's show is the thirtieth. It is our last one before Halloween. So maybe send in a question that pertains to that maybe we can answer some scary film questions who knows maybe try and focus your attentions and energies on that next week because when we go out next week there'll only be one day left to halloween no don't stop no don't do it don't do it you've had your you've had your shot Chris. okay i am going over to greenwich i am going to kill him okay no, somebody needs to just get me i don't know some kind of hygienic way of doing that i guess this is the problem with not being in the studio you literally can't kill him Mm. 
Right, so if you want to have your question read out in the Emperor Podcast and treat it with the respect it deserves, as at not Marcus B found to his cost, then you can get in touch with us mainly via Twitter these days, it has to be said. I am at Chris Hewitt on Twitter. You can reply to any of my tweets. You can wait for a panicked shout out every now and again, or you can slide into my DMs as not Marcus B did. How exciting. Okay, so that was the listener question, and now it is time to delve deep into this week's movie news. Where should we start? I mean, we've already kind of talked about the most important thing in all of Christendom, which is obviously that the West Wing is available on all four. Yes. Yeah, seven is. seasons. Yes. When did Sorkin leave? After season four. So do people just stop watching it at the end of season four? Does it get no, shit? No, 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 no not unless you're Nick the Semlin, who no, literally did well, that. Well, season five is weak. Let's be honest. It's the weak. No, 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 no. It's the weakest. Yeah. But I would still say it's better than most other things. Oh, sure. But it's it's weak West Wing. Yeah, but six and seven get one. back on track. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. And seven is magnificent. What's the one where he yells at God in Latin? I want to see that. That's season two. Two cathedrals. Two cathedrals. Four candles. So good. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's very, very, very good. All right. So there are seven seasons of the West Wing. They're available on all four. And one day, folks, yes. there will be eleven. Fast and Furious movies. Maybe they will all be available on all four as well. Doubtful, of course, but you never know. <laughs> I would mm. love to see The Rock screaming at God in Latin, though, just for the so record. Would I. So would I. Or screaming at Vin Diesel in Latin <gasps> would be even better. <laughs> He'd be so confused. <laughs> what's candy ass He'd have Latin? to go and write a pop song about it. Wait, what's, what's the Latin for family? I don't know. <laughs> Familium? I'm guessing. Yeah, <laughs> Probably. Yeah. Probably. Latin just yeah. seems to be adding um to questions, which is, in, you know. In toto familium. Yeah, yeah. I, I think... It, Paterfamilias. Well, yeah, because paterfamilias, so familias. Yeah. yeah. I speak a lot of Latin on this podcast. Um. <laughs> in the middle of all the Latin, you definitely hear the word corona in there a couple of times. <laughs> they just slip it in. <laughs> Familium. Oh, I want to do, I want to do Fast and Furious in Latin now. <laughs> Fast and Furious in Latin. I so want They have to go to the Vatican. They haven't been to the Vatican. Like, what are they even thinking? You know, it's going to happen. Anyway, so yes, this yes. week was the confirmation that Fast and Furious um, will end after Fast and Furious 11, and <laughs> no. which is by which point no. they'll be on, I don't know, Mars? Just Rydal. when it was getting good. <laughs> can I just say, can I just say, Ionium et furit is Fast and Furious in Latin. Really? <laughs> Thanks, James. Liberate tutame ex enferis. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Liberate tutame ex fin diesel. Save yourselves from fin diesel. This is painful news mm. for, for many reasons, uh, partly because <laughs> it's, it's just sad that the greatest soap opera of our time is mm. finally coming to end. And it's also just a reminder that 2020 was supposed to be the year of the magnet plane. And the, was, just the plans yes. for this year were so different. Give me back my magnet plane. <laughs> Give me back the magnet plane. Maybe <laughs> the magnet plane is a key part of the, the future of, of the series. Maybe 10 maybe. and 11 are very magnet plane centric. Well, maybe they, the they're using the magnet plane to kind of replace the rock um, as he goes off and has presumably 11 Hobbs and Shaw movies. So. <laughs> Yeah, so, well, that's the thing as well. If this is the end, it's definitely not the end. There will mm. be there will be spinoffs. There will be uh, there's that animated series, which yeah, I'm not that bothered about that. But think nothing ever really dies anymore, and I'm quite okay with that. I think <laughs> planum magnet is magnet plane in Latin. Ooh, okay. Cool. No, I think it, like, I'm not sure we needed that one. And I think I feel like you might be translating the wrong kind of plane there. You know, I feel like that might you be think? like a plane is in. Oh yes, a you're level. quite right. Okay, hang on, hang on, Oh, vivimus magnet is magnet aeroplane. Maybe that's more accurate. I don't know. We need Jed Bartlett here to help us yeah, out. Yeah, we do. But 
Anyway, in his absence, uh, Fast and Furious is coming to an end. And uh, well, I mean, at least we have three more films to go. So that will be yeah. some kind of comfort. And, and all the sundry spin-offs as well, because it'll never end, right? And it will never no. end. Well, family doesn't, does it, Chris? You could argue that three more Fast and Furious films is possibly three more Fast and Furious films than we absolutely need. Look, they haven't even been in space yet. Come on. That is true, but they are definitely going oh, they're to definitely space. they're definitely going so. to space, yeah. But we've they been saying that since space. day one. They shouldn't. In fairness, they should have probably stopped after Fast Five, which was the pinnacle of all human achievement, until, of course, it, it, That is correct, yeah. <laughs> Apart from the first one. But yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. One day we'll do a Fast and Furious ranking, and it'll just be me yelling at you for an hour. Not much different from now, obviously, but uh, I live my life a quarter of a mile at a time, according to Google Translate, oh. is Habito Fita, mea quarta par sit ad diez mille. That's amazing. But I live my life a quarter parsec at a time. We'll of course be the space installment. <laughs> well, who else are we going to send to greet the aliens? <laughs> yes. Oh, my God. Dom Toretto. It would be in all of their contracts that they get to punch the alien first so they all punch <laughs> the alien at the exact same time. Uh, yes, Fast and Furious 10 and 11 will be the last Fast and Furious movies, or at least in the mothership. Justin Lin is going to direct the final two movies, as indeed he is directing Fast and Furious 9. So something to get excited about. 11 is such a weird number to end on. It's like almost perfectly Fast and Furious that, that they'd go one more than 10. It goes up to 11. <laughs> That's exactly what they, somebody's thinking, I bet you. I bet Why you. are they ending? Well, I mean, you know, they can't do it forever, maybe. I don't know. Vin Diesel's getting on a bit. Oh! He is getting on a bit. Okay. All right. Well, listen, we know one thing is absolutely certain. And guys, check this out for a segue. How's it going to fucking knock your socks off? We know one thing that is for certain, that while the Fast and Furious franchise may be ending in the next couple of years, in about 15 years' time or so, Vin Diesel will return in a car battery advert, and there'll be a hashtag, Fast and Furious is back, and everyone will get excited for five seconds, and then they'll think, hang on, this is an ad, isn't it? And then they'll see the ad later on that day, and they'll just weep inside for the death of everything. Yeah, it's wow. not a good ad. So this is the the advert in case you don't know what we're talking about. Last week was a Sunday. It was Sunday because it was my, my wife was watching American. My wife was watching American football, and so Bruce Willis's daughter, Rumor Willis, tweeted a, a glimpse of Bruce Willis as John McClane walking down the street, whistling "Ode to Joy," and, and then he was surrounded by bad guys, and there was the hashtag Die Hard is back. And for a brief second, everyone was like, what have they, have they, what, what is this? Have they filmed a Die Hard movie in secret in lockdown? Is Bruce Willis back as John McClane? What's happening? And then we all thought, I think it's an ad for something, isn't it? It's like, you know, car batteries, advert or something. But it turned out to be, yeah, yeah it turned out to be an advert for uh, a brand of car battery called Die Hard, which apparently have, has been around for years, but um, in fact, predated the movie. You know, I think this is, a, right, this has been a problem with the Die Hard sequels as well, which is that they don't get the fundamental appeal of John McClane, which is that this stuff is hard for him to do. Like he is very competent and he is very daring and, you know, physically fit and all the rest. But like it's difficult, like it hurts. Mm -hmm. He pays a price for it. I feel like the the latter diehard movies and certainly this dumbass ad, like just <laughs> just treat him like yet another action superhero and it's a bit 
Uh, I'm not sure when they she said Die Hard is back. I'm not sure what would have been more heartbreaking, this admittedly heartbreaking advert or another Die Hard film. Because the last one, I believe it was called Die Hard by Contractual Obligation, was not particularly good. And neither was the one before that. Mm. And let's be honest, Die Hard with a Vengeance was essentially where this franchise yeah. ended. So I just, I didn't want to see another film, but there was something so tragic about seeing Theo and Argyle, I mean Argyle, Jesus Christ, and it's no, just, and when he's crawling through the duct and just no, No. have some self-respect, you can't need money that badly, I refuse to believe it. Maybe we need to treat this like we do the Indiana Jones films. What, like a cry for help? No, like the Indiana Jones (laughs) films, there's a trilogy and that's all, Yeah, and that's That's all there is. That's all there'll ever be. Yeah. That's all there'll ever be. There it is. The only good Die Hard content in the last maybe 15 years is that bit in the Lego Movie 2. There's a Die Hard uh, Bruce Willis cameo. I refuse to believe there's something good in the Lego Movie 2. There is. There is. There are also talking velociraptors, so there are two good things in the Lego Movie 2. Also, there's good songs, so there's three things. But yes, one of the, one of the funniest things in that is a um, there's a little Die Hard gag with, uh, with Bruce. I think it's Bruce Willis actually doing the voice. The advert is absolutely heartbreaking. So in case you, in case you haven't seen it, I don't, I don't urge you to seek it out. It's awful. It'll burn your eyeballs. But the conceit of the advert is that Theo, played by Clarence Gilliard Jr., from the first movie, he's one of only two members of Hans Gruber's team to survive John McClane <laughs> that night, <laughs> right? And uh, Jimbo, you presumably know the other one? Well, Carl survives for a bit and then gets shot in the face. But, but that's the very definition of yeah. The guy knocks out. It's, I forget. I forget. Is it? Which? Which? The? Uh, yes, that's true. That doesn't work out so well for him. Um, uh, it's. I can't remember the, the. It's the guy he knocks out in the in the the vault room. Yes. But uh, I can't remember. It's, it's, Christoph, it's, I believe it's, his name is. Oh my god, that must have been before he met Anna. <laughs> Do you want to rob a building? <laughs> Do you want to kill Takagi? There you go. I can do this all day. Anyway, so um, so Christoph survives, but Theo survives as well. And Theo has presumably got out of prison or escaped or something like that and is targeting John McClane for revenge. And then there's all sorts of running around and Argyle shows up, but he's still driving a limo somehow, even though 30 years have elapsed and you'd think he would have done something with his life. Um, and it's, it's really, really sad. And to say that Bruce Willis has phoned it in <laughs> is perhaps an understatement. And I miss Bruce Willis when he's infested and involved and engaged by the material and happens very rarely. Motherless Brooklyn, Helen, we were saying off mic. Mm. You think uh, he was good in that, but he's barely in Motherless Brooklyn. He's barely in it, but yeah, he's he's good in that at least. Um, so I think he and like he wasn't he wasn't bad in in uh, not Split, but the the sequel. Glass, yeah, I felt Glass. like he gave yeah, a bit. Yeah, I mean, of a it's a mess Glass. of a film, but he, you know, he. Yeah, he is alright in that. He performed well. He is. I mean, he's the he's the worst Bruce. Is he? Is, there, is he? Are there a lot of Bruce's? Who is his competition as a Bruce? Bruce Dern. Campbell. Campbell. Forsyth. Robert the. Robert. <laughs> yeah, clearly he's at the bottom of that list. But yeah, it's such a shame. This advert is such a shame. And I do not want to see another Die Hard movie. But I also, I don't know whether this just speaks to the pedant in me or not. But uh, I was watching the advert and uh, John McClane. And that's not John McClane, by the way. No. That's a man who looks like John McClane. John McClane spots Theo in a diner and goes, Theo? As if he recognises him. And I immediately went, hang on a second. <laughs> they they, they never, never met. met. <laughs> Maybe he read the police files afterwards, I guess. But I was then I was started thinking, the trial, right? They would have met at the trial. There the surely trial. would have been a trial. 
you've got to think when putting together this advert, I mean, I don't know if the actor who played Christoph is still alive, but presumably no one would have known who the hell he was. So. <laughs> yes. He's not the most recognisable of the terrorists. Precisely. Whereas Theo is, and he's great, and he's guy says, you know, the you know, the police have got themselves an the RV. The police have got themselves an RV. <laughs> oh, my God, the quarterback <laughs> is toast. Uh, All that stuff. <laughs> it's a time for miracles, Theo. Shall we talk about Justice League and Jared Leto? Sure. Must we? Let's do it. What's happening, Helen? Tell the people what's happening. Well, Zack Snyder's Justice League is somehow going to now feature Jared Leto's Joker. I don't quite know how that makes sense and how he was supposed to be in it in the first place, but apparently he totally was. So he's, he's going to be in there. He's going to be completing some scenes with Ben Affleck and adding some new material to Snyder's vision for the superhero team-up, which will be on HBO Max. The people I feel sorriest for after this news uh, is the cast of Justice League, who are presumably now, even as we speak, receiving nails, rat turds. <laughs> Dead rats. And, yeah. um, and creepy subscriptions in the mail, <laughs> courtesy of Jared Leto, who must be now getting super crazy again, because he's going to get under the skin of Mr. J. The same I feel sorry for. And then audiences after that but listen he won't be in it that long surely and i still stand by no. i'm excited to see this it's going to be fascinating to see what Zack snyder is cooking up um, mm. but as someone pointed out the other day this thing clearly wasn't anywhere near being finished because now they're throwing tons and tons of money at it to the point of hiring new cast members and whatnot so what state is this going to be in when we see it how finished is it going to be it's almost like somebody told them this this year, last year and got like a dog's abuse for it but you know oh, I'm not bitter so that's uh-oh, cool uh-oh. <laughs> but yes uh, Jared Leto's Joker was not my favourite iteration shall we say of that character in Suicide Squad and I think we all breathed a sigh of relief when we learned that he wasn't coming back uh, in anything and I, I'm not excited to see him Justice League I'm excited to see Justice League Zack Snyder's Justice League. I'm not excited mm. to see him in Justice League, but hey, he's got an Oscar and a rock band. He does have an Oscar. And I'm sure he'll turn me around on this. I mean, the, the thing with Jared Leto's Joker is just how how little it, of an impact it made on the culture. When you think mm. of Heath Ledger's Joker, when you think even of, of um, Joaquin Phoenix, it feels like Jared Leto gets forgotten in the middle, and that's that's for good reason. I think he just... That version of the Joker really really never landed in a in a way that basically every other screen incarnation of the joker has like the 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 nicholson one feels iconic the the hamill animated one feels like a uh, a sort of real classic incarnation of of that character it's just the leto one that just really feels like yeah. it vanished into into mm. thin air as soon as that film ended yeah well i mean looking forward to seeing it every day is christmas eve and all that and that will be on HBO Max. And previously, I thought that meant it was almost guaranteed to get a theatrical release over here. But The Witches is out next week and because of the Cineworld Picture House shutdown and because certain other cinema chains over here, I think Odeon, have curtailed their opening days, let alone opening hours. I believe Warner Brothers have chosen to put the new Robert Zemeckis movie straight to streaming and that's a shame. We'll discuss that and we'll review that movie on next week's show. But yeah, that is one of the sad casualties for me of the focus and the shift in focus to streaming. Because I would I would quite like to have seen that one on the big screen. So uh, I don't know whether we'll get the four-hour uh, Zack Snyder Justice League on the big screen. I hope we do. I really hope we do. But uh, we shall see how that one goes. Speaking of things yeah. we're not going to get in the big screen, my God, my segue is on point this week. <laughs> 
Willow is back and Squee! he's going to be on Disney Plus and he's going to be played once again by Warwick Davis and Ron Howard's involved and John M. Chu is going to direct the pilot and uh, since I have absolutely no affinity for that film whatsoever I'm oh. going to let Helen take it on from here Hooray! I'm so pleased about this Look, Willow is silly and um, nonsensical at times and just one of my favourite films of the 80s I mean you've got to remember fantasy in the 80s was not good at all Crawl. Crawl. Yeah, have crawl. you gone? I have. We've had this discussion. Go back and watch Crawl. It is Shan't absolutely it. unbelievable <laughs> shit. No, it's brilliant, and I won't watch it again. It is so terrible, and Willow pretty much stands up, um, particularly Legend. in contrast. But even with the Slayer, no, it is Lady Hawk. It is head and shoulders above all Beast of those, Master. and it's Beast not Master. tall. No, absolutely not. Anyway, look, Willow is. Easily my favourite fantasy film of the eighties, and uh, and I just think it's delightful. I think Warwick Davis is a super charming lead. Thank you. No, um, Warwick Davis is a super charming lead. I think he was like nineteen when this was made. He feels older. He he's playing a character. I think is meant to be older. He's a father. He's a man of responsibility, but he has to leave everything behind to deliver a golden child type important baby to a <laughs> safe golden place. Child. The Golden Child, which Just he does with the help now. of um, of Val Kilmer's amazing Mad Mardican. There's so many quotable lines in it. There's so many funny, ridiculous bits. Um, there's a bit where everybody's turned into pigs. It's quite scary. Uh, there's a baby in in peril who I imagine is going to be a grown-up character. I would imagine that Laura Dannon will appear in this series. Is that the name of the character or the actor? Laura Dannon is the name of the character. She's the baby who Willow has to get to safety and protect from the evil Queen Bavmorda. Oh, it's so good. Helen, you're clearly excited about this. You've, yeah. you've persuaded me to um, think about giving it a revisit at some point. Jimbo, Ben, Hurrah. are you excited about Willow? <sighs> Of course, it's a TV series, so it's something for me to talk about on the Pilot TV <laughs> oh, podcast. Good Lord. <laughs> no, I couldn't give a shit. Um, <laughs> I'm not a huge fan of Willow. It's fine. I like Val Kilmer. I especially like Joanne Welly in it. I think she's great. Yeah, she's great in it. But, uh, I mean, it's rubbish, isn't it? No. It is. I mean, Helen, it's, it's no crawl. It's no crawl. It's, and it's certainly yeah, no Beastmaster. Yeah, that's Master. a good thing. <laughs> I've never seen Willow. I, oh, I'm going to have to go you'll and, love it. But Ben, you were the baby in, in Willow, presumably. I was the baby in Willow. I'm coming back. Uh, I'm going to have to watch this one first. No, I, um, I'm happy for John M. Chu because apparently he is mm. a huge fan to the extent that he named his kid Willow after Willow. Oh, Willow, yeah. Yes, after Willow from Buffy, surely. <laughs> yes. It, it does uh, give me a bit of pause for... Uh, John M. Chu is just becoming one of the busiest people in Hollywood at the moment and he is becoming that slightly sort of Guillermo del Toro figure of just being attached to everything um, and everything he's attached to I want to see and then it feels like some of those things take ages gonna mm. happen like mm. what I, I where are those crazy rich asians sequels and uh, he's doing mm. the chilean miners drama as well and mm. he's got loads of stuff coming up but i'm i'm chuffed for him because this clearly means a huge amount to him there's a little bit of uh, almost news about falcon and the winter soldier they said mm. that it's going to bring back early marvel characters which i thought was intriguing i don't know if that's going to be flashbacks to the howling commandos if it's going to be i don't know who else are we talking? Presumably General Ross, nice Secretary Ross, maybe. But are we talking Justin Hammer? Like, what What does that mean, early Marvel characters? Oh, you might be right about the Highland Commandos. Mm, right? Could be some little flashbacks, you know, Capsule somewhere flirting with Peggy and the mm -hmm. Highland Commandos actually get, you know, to do some missions. Be cool. Yeah, that'd yeah, be I mean, interesting. Obviously, we know that, that Zemo's back, that apparently mm -hmm. Batroc is back, but the 
the the phrasing of this makes it sound like it's going to be phase one characters. It who, does, doesn't it? Yeah. Which, yeah, is intriguing. Like you said, the, the Howling Commandos. And yeah, Justin Hammer seems to be a big sort of rumour. Obviously, he was in Iron Man 2 a lot and then has just sort of disappeared in a way that other figures have stuck around in a sense of even Trevor Slattery in the in the Hail to the King mm-hmm. um, one shot. Um, yeah, some of those mm-hmm. early characters do tend to linger on in a way that Justin Hammer kind of hasn't. I know he did Fosse Ferdin, and I know that Marvel have removed the stigma. Not that there has been much stigma around TV these days, but they've removed that sort of divide between the MCU movies and the MCU shows. And they've obviously got the mm. likes of Hiddleston and Renner and Lizzie Olsen and Paul Bettany to commit to these things. And Anthony Mackie and Sebastian Stan as well, obviously. But I don't know, with the f- fairly newly Oscar winning Sam Rockwell, and it was a couple of years ago now, but would he do a TV show? I don't know. Fascinating to see. We'll see how it goes. But yeah, excited about that. That'll be out at some point next year, we're guessing, on Disney+. Plus. Anyway, that is it for the movie news section this week. And now it is time for this week's guest. Olivia Cook is a fantastic British actor. She was incredible as the dying girl, spoiler, in Me and Earl and the Dying Girl. And uh, she made quite an impact as well in Steven Spielberg's Ready Player One a couple of years ago. This week, she is Pixie, the title star of the film Pixie, in which she plays a an Irish gangster associated woman shall we say who gets in way over her head and goes on a on a very incident laden road trip with two fellas two lovely fellas and there's lots of guns and drugs and tarantino and mcdonough references oh my uh so olivia cook is a lot of fun i i spoke to her last week on squadcast and we had a good all the time talking about this movie, about how she broke into acting, uh, how her mom reacts to her, her her acting career, and all sorts of stuff besides. Do please enjoy. Delighted to be joined on the Emperor Podcast in lockdown, of course, by the star of Pixie, Olivia Cook. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right, all things considered. Uh, how's your lockdown been? Um, God, it sounds horrible to say, but not that bad, really. I mean, I usually, <laughs> I feel like I've, I've fared better in lockdown than I do in the, in the real the real non-lockdown world. I've had a quite a nice time. And I know that's horrible to say because people are dying and it's pandemic and stuff, but yeah, I'm, I moved to London in January. I was in New York for four years before that. And um, now I'm close to all my best mates that I grew up with. So it's been all right for me. Well, not not close. I mean, not within six feet, right? No, then six, of course not, never, not hugs them in a year, um, but, <laughs> but um, close-ish. In the same postcode. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's go with that. Uh, so yeah, you were, you were in New York for four years. Uh, well, what took you to New York and, uh, and how did you find it? Um, I was doing a film when I was 21 in New Mexico and most of the group most of the cast and crew, they lived in New York. And I was just like, you know what? Fuck it. You know, I'm not really living anywhere. It's really annoying having to go back after every job for two months and stay with my mum in Manchester um, and fester like 15-year-olds. So I was like, let's just do it. Let's just move to New York. And then I did and was really anxious and miserable for a, a lot of it um, with a very limited number of friends. But it was a great experience. <laughs> Apart from the anxiety and the and the awfulness of it all. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
<laughs> well, I'm glad you had an experience anyway. And uh, and and I have to ask, when you went back to Manchester and stayed with your mum for two months at a time or, or whatever it was, did you keep your room exactly the same as it, as it was? I mean, has your room been frozen you know, in stasis since you were, say, 15, 16 or so? Or did you spruce it up every now and again? My mum would spruce up my room every time I went away with my dad for a week. So like every year I'd come back with a completely new room that she'd just had as a project and I had no say in it whatsoever. So sometimes it'd be yellow. I came back one time and there was like animal prints on the wall and I was like 12 and I was like, mum, I'm too old for this. Um, and no, now it's, now she's just got a new headboard for the room and there's a picture of 42nd Street um broadway um that i had that she put in and installed when i was 18 before i ever moved there that i hated i thought it was so cringe like the equivalent of like a live laugh love poster and now she uses it as like a cork board that she sticks my like headshots and cards up from like various jobs that i've done as like a shrine to me um, I'm sure for like when, you know, Debbie comes around from across the road to have a look to see what I'm doing now. I'm just like, oh, God, mom. <laughs> well, that's great. It's like the IMDb, but in physical form, just right there. Yeah, it's like the olden version of IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> but that's awesome. So Debbie, Debbie pops in for you know, a cup of sugar or whatever. And, you know, she doesn't normally she would have to look up. What's Olivia doing? Well, let me just check IMDb. But she doesn't need to do it anymore. She looks you know, at the corkboard. And there you go, Ready Player One, Thoroughbreds, it's all there. Yeah, let yeah, let me show you the um the 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 amalgamation of random cast photos and cards that I've gotten over the years that mean nothing to you really, Debbie, because you don't really know the ins and outs and you don't even know who that person is, because also you're not even seeing the film. So <laughs> But she will. Debbie will see it one day. Uh, but that, honestly, Olivia, less lovely because, you know, it's great to think the, the pride that parents take in their kids and their kids' achievements. And, you know, for example, I, I, I starred as Fagin in my high school production of Oliver, and it was captured on a crappy VHS tape. And I would come downstairs sometimes at two in the morning because my mom was a night owl, and I would find her watching this just over and over again. And... Let me tell you, I was shit. I mean, really, I thought I was the, the bee's knees. But looking back now, I, I don't think I was quite up there with the best. But she just loved this stuff. And it's just it's the pride that, that parents infest in their kids and their, and their achievements. And it's, so it's lovely that your mom has that court board. That's so sweet because it's also so personal to her. And if anyone else that was outside of your family saw her doing that, they'd be like, are you, are you all right? <laughs> Are you okay? Are you having an episode? Yeah. Also, Fagin at 16. We will not look the oldest. I, uh, no. I, well, I had some great makeup on and whatnot, but but it, it wasn't, I, I didn't have the life experience. Okay. Uh, did you did you do high school plays? Did you do plays at school? Is that kind of what, what gave you the bug? Um, I did. I was a, a member of Oldham Theatre Workshop, which is a bit like the TV workshop in Nottingham that I went to twice a week. It was four hours each, well, eight hours a week. And um, that's where I met all my, my best mates, was going there since I was eight. And yeah, I think that's where, I think also because I met such good pals there and they were like, you know, we're going to 
and they were a bit older than me and they were like, oh, we're going to, you know, audition for drama school and we're going to work in the theatre and stuff. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. And I want to be just like you. Um, so that's how I think really I just got my personality. I don't even think it was the genesis was really from me. It was just from trying to impress older pals. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so did you, is that, is that what made you think you can do this for, for a living, do this professionally? Yeah, definitely. Because I was just, you know, we I was there after school for eight hours a week. If and then if we were doing a show, um, you know, we'd be there doing rehearsals every night for the two weeks running, leading up to it, and then maybe a twenty-four hour rehearsal, um, which was mad. Thinking about it, we'd spend twenty-four hours in this studio, just going off our not. Bless the teachers and the people that worked there for you know corralling you know, a cast of 30 under, mostly under 18 year olds running around off, off the heads on Red Bull. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh God, this is a safe space where you can just be silly. And also my best mates are here and there's no judgment. And it was just a, God, such a lovely way to grow up. And I was like, God, if this was, if this is what it's like, then I want to do this all the time. And it's not what it's like <laughs> at all. <laughs> So it's not what it's like. No, is it? No, it's so. It's uh, there's some jobs that you get where you just like, oh my god, this is pure magic, and it feels like we're on some in summer camp, and everyone loves a script and wants to be involved, and will literally be paid nothing just to run and you know maybe stick something on the wall or like hold a curtain up in the background. But then also sometimes it's not as much a labour of love as you would like it to be. Uh, but I'm guessing Pixie was not, God, what a segue. I'm guessing Pixie is not one of those experiences for you. That was seamless. Um, no, it wasn't actually. Um, I'd, I'd heard, I think from listening to podcasts with like Julie Louis-Dreyfus, where she says actually filming Veep is really stressful because you're really, not that I'm comparing Pixie or myself to Julie Louis-Dreyfus at all. But um, I think- I didn't see a lot of similarities between Pixie and Veep, if I'm honest. But I was just, I was, I was listening to her and she said, it's really stressful doing, oh, someone's about to take my bins out. So sorry, that's gonna be quite noisy. Um, so she, she was saying how it's quite stressful to make jokes land and it's not as fun as what it may seem like when, when you're watching Veep. But I had the opposite experience, maybe, Maybe that means like the jokes are shit in Pixie. <laughs> but I just thought it was, I had such a riot. It was so fun. We were constant, I was constantly corpsing. I was constantly breaking and, and, and God, laughing and being a bit of a nuisance actually probably. But I just thought it was so much fun. And that, that energy kind of carried on offset as well and it was just a very fun and mischievous time which i love and you shot it roughly what a year ago so yeah I was, yeah so that that oh god is what was it the last thing you did before lockdown or did you move on to something else after that that was the last thing i did before lockdown bar a few days um in montreal recording and um, animation voicing animation so yeah that was the, the last proper like act, bit of acting that i did and it's been a year since. Have you forgotten how to do it? Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I, yeah, I'm like, oh God, just, I'm like to my age, I was like, maybe I just need to do something really small that no one watches for like an obscure network somewhere, if I can, um, just to practice again. 
<laughs> He's like, Channel 5's hiring. <laughs> yeah, Channel 5, like, um, what is it? Um, when they when there's like a true crime and they've got actors to do the, the what is it? Like, I think the word. The true crime mysteries, recreations? Recreations, yeah. 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 Reconstructions. Reconstruction of a, of a true crime and then just do a bit of like screaming and crying and see if I've still got it. Genuinely, I would love that. I would love, and I'd love if you didn't publicize it or or talk about it in any way, shape or form. So let's say six months time, someone's watching Channel 5 and, you know, someone's been horribly murdered on this, this true crime reconstruction. And people are going, hang on a second, is that Olivia Cook? And nothing's mentioned about it ever again. You don't even put it in your IMDb. No, oh God, I would never. No, I'm not going to be a snob, but you couldn't. But the people are like, what is she all right? It took time for Olivia, she's gone bankrupt. Um, <laughs> also, people wouldn't be like, that's Olivia Cut. They'd be like, is that that girl from, I don't know, fucking Ouija? <laughs> Did that be mad? Uh, but going back to Pixie, you shot that in obviously Ireland and uh, Belfast. And I dare say you know Belfast better than I do these days because I only get back every now and again. I haven't been back at all in lockdown. Uh, how was your Belfast experience compared to, say, your New York experience? Oh, it was fab. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I loved it. Everyone is just the the friendliest bunch I found, and um, it was just really nice. I love a town where it feels so compact that you can just get up out of your hotel and go and find either a bit of trouble or whatever you want to find. Um, and, and that usually happened most nights after filming, um, which was just so fun for me. You know, I don't, I don't usually indulge in that, but I think I'll blame it on Belfast, how it has this, it has a quality that's quite luring and you want to, you want to experience it to its fullest. <laughs> So uh, where did the accent come from? Because my, my impression of you from uh, watching your movies uh, is that you're an accent chameleon and that things come quite naturally to you. Uh, is that a misleading impression? Yeah, I think so. I have to work really hard on it. And luckily, most jobs where I've got to do an accent bar like my my sort of general American now, because I can kind of have done that for so long and that's been the majority of my roles. Um, but I'm lucky enough to plead and beg for a dialect coach when I'm doing these accents because otherwise I would I would be a little bit lost and I'm and I'm a bit of a stickler for the for the nuance of an accent and my pet peeve is when people do you know a specific northern accent and then just do like a just a generalized north accent that's been that takes bits and bobs from everywhere so I really really tried hard to not let that be the case but god who knows who knows with this one I really hope that people are just like my actually my friend Niall who's Irish was like yeah it's fine and I'm like okay fine's 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 good I'll, I'll I can I can deal with fine and the character itself I mean Pixie as we as we mentioned before is perhaps a little capricious but she's also totally grounded and she's totally you know, one, two steps ahead of everybody else in this. And uh, she must have been real fun to create, I, I guess. Oh, God, yeah. And a lot of it, to be honest, is is on the page. Um, Preston Thompson, who who wrote Pixie, he, he's he got a very infectious um, 
naughty sense of humor and personality that I think he poured into Pixie and spending time with him and and also just it, it, it lifted off the page and so I don't I don't really feel like I had to do too much I could kind of just turn up the little bits of me that I think that I thought matched quite well with her <laughs> which bits were those um just maybe a little like a taste of mischievy and, and being a bit cheeky and a bit naughty sometimes <laughs> <laughs> they're all coming from the prism prism of you in a way aren't they even the most um method of actors it's all it's all them well even thoroughbreds even th- my mom so again lindsay cook coming back to her um if you watched thoroughbreds and so for anyone that's not seen Therabirds, I'm not expecting that anyone has, but I play someone who doesn't feel anything ever and finds it really difficult to emote and, well, can't emote, but tries really hard to be a good person. And my mum watched it and she was like, oh, Olivia loved it. I loved it. It's just you that. It's just you, honestly. It's just you. And I was like, mum, I'm playing, I'm playing someone that's like a psychopath. Like, oh, it's just you, honestly. It's just you. The face, honestly, the face that you did, it's just you. And I was like, Mom, what are you trying to say? <laughs> so, yeah, Lindsay Cook thinks I'm psychopath, really. <laughs> well, you know, all, all parents take pride in their kids, don't they, really? And, you know, even if you're a psychopath, it's all fine. Yeah. 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 Oh, he, he, he did ever such a good murder last week. <laughs> no, I know. I was like, Mom, I cry all the time. She's like, honestly, it's just you. It's just you. And I was like, you don't know me at all. <laughs> yeah, it's just you. It's just you. You feel nothing. You're you're an emotionless husk. Oh, it's just you. It's just it's amazing. A husk, yeah. I mean, you're not the only person doing an Irish accent. It's Ben Hardy's doing an Irish accent, um, and so is Lord Alec of Baldwin. Who why did they say it like that? Sound like a radio DJ. So is Alec Baldwin, who pops in, does pretty damn good Irish accent, waves a gun around. Job's done. Thanks very much, Alec. Yeah, so surreal. I mean, meeting him on set when he's just in his priest um, attire, waving a gun, using a nun as a shield, um, just mad. And then then doing this Irish accent as well. And I've, I've been so used to seeing him on SNL playing Trump and being like, this is mad. Um, but he was lovely. He was only there for a few days. Um, but, yeah, just a very interesting man who just, like, has – an energy that captivates a room. Mm. They're always so interested in those characters because I'm like, did you always have that or has that just come with age and notoriety? Do you still, I mean, are you, are you at that point, you, mean, you know, you've got your Alec Baldwin experience, but you also have obviously your Steven Spielberg experience. Do you, are you still, uh, do, you, do you ever get starstruck? I mean, is that something that ever happened to you? I mean, are you, are, what, what stage are you at in your, in your career in, in regards to meeting these people who have been, famous for for decades i think i i'm not sure if this is being starstruck maybe it is but i just i used to get really like embarrassed and shy which is probably the same as being starstruck i've just tried to be coin it in my head being like you're not a star fucker olivia you don't care you're just embarrassed you're just shy just a shy person um but i think now i've gotten quite good at masking that but feeling myself cringe internally when i meet someone that 
I immediately recognize and think, oh, we're friends. And also then your brain has to go, no, you're not, Olivia. You've just watched them for a long period of time. And then and then be really nonchalant and and try to be really cool and try to not make it seem so obvious that you know everything about them and ask questions which you already know the answer to, but you want to seem like a nice, interesting human and someone that, you know, is quite unaware of um their fame. But yeah, it's just it's a it's a bit of a it's a, just it's an, just an odd experience when you meet someone where you don't know but you know everything about and i try to to yeah palm it off as just me being nonchalant and cool but inside i'm dying i i read an interview with you from a few years ago now where you said that titanic was the film that kind of made you want to act in the first place now is were you just saying that or is is that is that the case do you even remember saying that? Judging from your face, you don't remember saying that. No, I, I've, I've got a vague recollection. Mad from me to say that Titanic was the one thing that made, made me want to act. I'm not sure that if that is true. I think I just couldn't think of a film off the top of my head. Or maybe if I even had one, that made me want to be an actor. So I was like, oh, Titanic. Um, but <laughs> you say so much shit off when you're on the when you're put under pressure where you're just like I just said that I don't mean that at all but now I've said it and I can't take it back um but I don't think it was any film I think it was just me doing Oldham Theatre Workshop and being around my pals and just having so much fun and being like this would be mint if I just get to do this for the rest of my life and then since then having a bit of a movie education because being the eldest, you kind of you're forced to educate yourself if your parents aren't really that into movies, and and seeing all these great films by amazing filmmakers and being and you know being so inspired by that and just having a bit of bit of a yeah uh, uh, the gumption to and the confidence maybe to want to do that. That's fascinating. So that, that means, for example, that you, you, you didn't, when you started, you didn't necessarily have someone in your head. You weren't necessarily uh, unconsciously borrowing moves from other actors. Yeah, I think so. And then I think I got into like a massive Kerry Mulligan phase where I was just like, I will be, I will do everything that she does. And she doesn't do very much with her face. So I will not do very much with my face either, you know? <laughs> um, and then. And then probably steal from everyone now, really. I've just been tainted. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say, for example, your Spielberg experience. Did you, when you got Ready Player One, did you, I mean, how much did, how many Spielberg films had you seen? Did you, did you go on a massive binge? Was that, was that one of the things you were, you were alluding to, I guess? Yeah, I think I'd just been alive in the world, already seen quite a lot of, of course, yeah. Spielberg films. And I remember, God, once in an interview, Someone asked, what's your favourite Spielberg film? And I went, Hook. And the interviewer looked at me in such disgust. And I was like, I don't remember that film being that bad. And then I watched it recently and it's amazing. It's an amazing film. And it got panned at the time and I don't understand why because it's incredible. And I don't care, I'll say it again, <laughs> you know, for people in the back. But yeah, I had, I was, you know, very aware of Steven Spielberg and and also obviously and how incredible of a filmmaker he is. And so getting that call was just really bizarre, just bizarre to get that call at, at, at 21 to say that 
you're going to be in a Steven Spielberg film being like, this isn't how things should happen in my life. This wasn't, you know, the careers counsellor at Oldham Sixth Form never said this, <laughs> you know. Well, so what sort of thing, if you'd said that to the careers counsellor, they would have gone, yes, and the the backup is, what are you going to do as a backup? Because that's never going to work for you. Yeah, and they would have gone, you are a psychopath. Your mother was right. <laughs> well, maybe the psychopath part has helped you get ahead in acting. <sighs> maybe. I'm going to be really anxious now, thinking that everyone thinks I'm a psychopath, or that I am a psychopath. Have you read John Bonson's A Psychopath Test? I haven't yet, no. It's very good, but you're reading it and you're like, oh God, am I a psychopath? Am I? And then and then John Ronson, like maybe a third into the book, goes to the reader, okay, so um, if you are worrying that you're a psychopath, chances are that you're not, because psychopaths aren't that self-aware. Why am I trying to convince everyone that I'm not a psychopath? Why have I done this now? Oh my God. No. I'm I'm going to cut everything else out from this interview and just leave this bit. <laughs> oh, fuck's sake. Anyway. <laughs> On the Empire Podcast this week, Olivia Cook convinces everybody or tries to convince everybody that she's not a psychopath. We, and here's the audio. I'm not a psychopath. She said psychopathically. But even when you asked me about had I read the John, uh, the psychopath test, I thought for a second, lie, lie, say yes. Is that, does that mean I'm a psychopath? No, I do that all the time. Well, but I'm a psychopath. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> well, from one psychopath to another, it's been, well, I can't feel anything. So if I say pleasure, I'm not entirely sure if that's true or not, but it has been what I presume humans understand as pleasure. Okay. Me too. Yeah. We'll go with that, shall we? Yeah. Olivia Cook, thank you very much for whatever the hell this has been. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. <laughs> oh, God. Okay, so that was Olivia Cook, and we're going to be talking about Pixie later in the review section, because it is now the review section, but we're going to start off with, well, I think there's only one place to start off, and that's the potentially glorious return of Borat Niznaz. He is back, Sasha Baron Cohen, 14 years after Borat was last seen on the big screen, in fact, won't be seen on the big screen this time around because it's on Amazon Prime Video. But uh, he has back, he has shot a sequel in secret over the summer. Uh, so all these little reports you were hearing of Baron Cohen being up to some hijinks in America. Now we know why, because he was being Borat again. And the title of this movie is officially Borat Subsequent Movie Film. It is a bit more complicated than that in terms of what the title kind of really is. But we won't go into it because of spoilers. But uh, Jimbo... What's happening in this movie? Tell us about it. Oh, God. Uh, Borat's subsequent movie film, Delivery of Prodigious Bribe to American Regime for Make Benefit, Once Glorious Nation of Kazakhstan. Although it's had a number of different extended titles, hasn't it? Like The oh, extended title seems to vary depending on what you look at it. over what I just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not really a spoiler, is it? It's not really not. a spoiler. Yeah. But anyway, so th- before I get into this, there is something I kind of need to, to mention. There is a term in the German language called Fremdscheimen. Uh, and it is a term that, of course, only the Germans have come up with a name for, but it is that sense of cushion-chewing, blanket-under-hiding, excruciating misery that comes from watching cringe comedy. You know, The Office gives it to you to a certain extent. Uh, Cobra Enthusiasm is a purveyor of similar feelings. This film, though, fuck me. Like, if you are in any way sensitive to Fremd Shyman, this may destroy you. I had to watch this in several increments. I had to stop it regularly to run out of the room and scream because I found it excruciating 
excruciatingly hard to watch. And fair play to Sasha Baron Cohen because he is an actor without any fear at all. Mm. Like some of the stuff he does, I just don't know how he has the nerve to do it and stay in character completely po-faced and just carry it off. My eternal respect to him. I think he's vastly underrated as a performer. But just to kind of give this some context, so this is set uh, 14-odd years after Borat won and uh, Borat, the great Kazakh reporter, has been in a gulag uh, after the infamy of the first film. He is released from the gulag by the Kazakh premier who would like to join uh, Donald Trump's strongman club <laughs> along with Putin and Bolsonaro. So he sends Borat to America to give a porn star monkey to Michael <laughs> Pence. And that is basically the setup of this film. And if that sounds fucking ridiculous, then you are well on the way to understanding the nature of this film. The plot goes in many different directions after that, but that's the basic setup here. And it's exactly the same as the first film. It's a it's a, it's a combination of, of scripted set pieces and overarching quote-unquote narrative and improv sequences where he unwittingly, unwittingly in inverted commas, because some of these I'm pretty sure he went in blind and they had no idea what was going on. Some of them I think were slightly more staged, mm. but your mileage may vary. Um, and he takes this kind of character and uses him to lampoon America. It's slightly different to the first one by dint of the fact that Borat is an incredibly famous character now, you know, on screen and everyone mm. knows who he is. And they get, they deal with that quite early on by having him be recognised by people. And so uh, Baron Cohen adopts a, a variety of other disguises for Borat to hide himself in, like fat suits, beards, whatnot, uh, some more ridiculous than the next. And he does things like turn up with his daughter to a sort of pro-life clinic and try and get the baby out of her although there's slightly more to it than that and oh, it's 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 just oh my god he turns up somewhere else in a clan outfit it's just he tries to buy a phone from a shop pretends he doesn't understand what it is and goes and has a wank in the toilet while it's being streamed onto a television like it is exactly that kind of stuff but i think what's what's funny about this is on the one hand this made me laugh out loud on numerous occasions almost wow. to the point of crying out but but while also hiding under my sofa. Understand that. Like, it, was, it was a very weird experience for me. But also, there's something about this film which is really upsetting and tragic. And it's no fault of his. It's just that he shows modern America for kind of what it is. And it's horrific. And it's tragic. And it's upsetting. And it's he goes to extremes with his character and the amount of Americans who kind of just go along with it and don't condemn it. And there's a, there's a QAnon sort of like uh, anti-Clinton, anti-COVID Trump rally thing that he goes to where he's getting them to all shout, kill the journalists, chop them up like the Saudis do without any irony, these people singing along to it. And you're just like, this is fucking horrifying however in addition to that there's a really good really funny joke about kevin spacey and if anyone's been looking at the news then the uh, rudy giuliani stuff is quite something to behold mm. some of that's been taken out of context i think it's worth saying but oh yeah, yeah. absolutely absolutely and 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 also, that there's a sense of this is how much of this is genuine because oftentimes I'm looking in these situations where he's in the room with these these two guys, he's staying with these two guys. Who's filming this? Like, mm. I'm just I'm yeah. genuinely unclear who's filming these scenes. Like, is there a cameraman there who's just like, you can't see me, you can't see me? Is it a hidden camera? It's not clear to me. So they've got to be in on something because some of them are obviously being filmed. So 
but but either way, either way, I mean, don't think too much into it. There's a lot of genius stuff in here. Mike Pence features to great effect. So his daughter in this play by Maria Bakalova is actually a bit of a revelation. Yeah. She, I think, almost is more impressive than some of the things she does when she goes to a Republican women's meeting and starts talking about masturbation on stage. It's quite extraordinary, and she is incredible. And the two of them together, it makes a slightly different dynamic mm. to Borat and Azamat in the first one. But it's really nice. And the narrative of him, like, keeping it, daughter selling her to men to keep in a cage and the ridiculous things he teaches her is obviously very over the top but she brings real heart to it and there's one particular relationship she has with a woman in it which is really touching and it's it's actually really lovely mm. so I, I i thought this film was great obviously i'm not a friend of comedy or humor or you know fun things but this is great it didn't burst half the blood vessels in my face as dan jolin once claimed the first one did to him mm-hmm. but it's a hell of a film. What did, what did you guys make? You love it? Hate it? When we saw the it? first Borat, we were in a screening room packed to the gills with people. We had that experience of laughing, which we is, did. and we comedy did. and laughter is so infectious. And I was watching this last night on my computer and I was laughing, but I just felt, oh, I felt, I felt, I miss, I, 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 I don't say this often, but I missed you guys. And I, it would have been nice to have been <laughs> in a room with people watching this and feeling that those shared moments, because mm. it's just not the same. I, I can't tell whether this is funnier than the first movie or not, really. Uh, I need other people to tell me if it's funny. <laughs> the context, I think, makes it more heartbreaking than the first one. But easily, he's so fucking bold and his jokes really really pushed the envelope there's a bit in a synagogue where i was like oh, oh my yeah, that's, god holy shit. how is this happening uh and even just some of the things he says are so extreme that you're almost like there's there's a point where at what point does this stop being parody and actually just become offensive like he walks that line very mm-hmm. finely for, for me, um, the stuff that really, really made me laugh is just the super silly stuff. Like, there are, I think I'd, you forget how silly Bora is as a character, as well as all the offensive stuff. I think that's the stuff that sticks in your mind, whereas um, <laughs> the, the, the phrase calculator crazy made me laugh for about five minutes. But he, I, I, I really liked the silly stuff. I thought the a lot of the punches that it threw landed really well. There was some of the material that falls in the middle ground of that that I was mm. like, could have taken or left. And I think even though it's only 95 minutes long, mm, I could have done with sure. it being slightly shorter. Like just mm. if it was like 80 minutes, super punchy. I think there were moments where because it is it is a, a mixture of yeah, scripted moments, unscripted moments, different encounters, different pranks, a sort of fairly me- meandering plot they could have reined it in very slightly more um because there were points where it was maybe i don't know just over an hour in and you think we've got half an hour left but i don't really i've had Mm. a lot of borat already and uh i don't know if i need another half hour of borat but it is it is really funny i think like you said the experience of watching it at home instead of watching it in a cinema is kind of barking laughing to yourself and then the silence and the sheer guilt that you're left with (laughs) in the immediate aftermath I'd have had nowhere to hide in a cinema, so mm. there's always that. Yeah. Mm. No, I, I I like this. I think that there was much more of a through line, actually, just in the father-daughter mm. stuff this yeah. time than last time. And I think you're right that she she is fantastic. And to meet him on his terms and on his level is extraordinary for any young actor, I think, but but especially for someone with a relatively short career behind her, I think is, is absolutely incredible. There were some odd cuts, and I wonder if people caught on 
or reacted un, yeah. you know, unsurprisingly unsur- uh, reasonably, perhaps like mm. something you mentioned the Republicans' women meeting, women's meeting. Yeah. I thought that reflected quite well on them. Actually, I thought they reacted they quite, quite class- about it. classily. <laughs> yeah. So there, you know, there were moments like that where you're like, did you not? Were you hoping for more of a reaction than you got, yeah. and you've just sort of cut the scene quite short? Um, there were a few things like that that were odd. There's a moment at the debutante ball as well where a daughter talks to her father and I was like that was a lovely kind of very real moment mm-hmm. captured on camera yeah yeah there was there were some great moments I, I you know you're going to see a lot of talk in the next well probably by the time you are listening to this you will have heard the talk and also seen the film but the the Rudy Giuliani stuff is definitely he- headline grabbing but some of those headlines are already over egged so you know just be mm. be chill people be chill in terms of the performances the same thing with the first one these are the sort of performances that will never be under Oscar consideration. Mm. Mm. But you might be hard-pressed to find better performances than these two, or certainly more more dedicated and more committed performances than these two. Mm. And they should absolutely be in consideration, but they, but they won't because of, you know, as we talked about in the podcast before, the Academy's snobbish attitude towards comedy. He literally wore body armour for some of this because he was genuinely like, this could get hairy very quickly. Like, and I can fully understand that. Like, he really puts himself at risk mm. doing this. Like, the dedication is extraordinary. If you ask me to do either this or fling myself into the wilderness, Leonardo DiCaprio style, I think I would choose the Revenant route. I think oh, I would rather sure. do that yeah. than half the stuff they do in this film. Yeah. You'd be a lot safer with the grizzly. Yes. That's exactly what I mean, Ben. I mean, Leonardo DiCaprio lay down in the puddle and got a bit cold. And people went, oh my, oh my God, God, what commitment, what what genius. That's given an Oscar. And the shit that Sasha Baron Cohen gets up to, I read yeah. one point that he had to stay in character for five solid days with one of the scenes. He stays I think, with I those think, guys, doesn't yeah, he? Cause he there's, yeah, there's a point where he stays with two guys and we're not entirely sure how long, but it's long enough for parcels to be delivered to them and that, that sort of mm. thing. So the dedication and the commitment that he that he shows to that and the, the bravery is incredible. Um, I loved it in those grounds. I don't think it was as good as the first movie. I think at times, mm. Ben, you talked about it, it landing some punches, but sometimes the punches just miss completely or didn't need to be thrown at all. The, the yeah. moments that James re- refers to, the moment in the synagogue, um, mm-hmm. and the moment where he turns up. There's a, it's in the trailer, uh, but there's a moment where he turns up at a Mike Pence rally dressed as Donald Trump, yeah. and a moment where he, <laughs> and the moment where he goes into a hotel lobby in, um, in KKK oh robes. They don't need to be in the movie. What, what, what points he trying to make? And I felt it really ran out of steam towards the end. By and large, I had a really good time with it. When it's really funny, it's really funny. Helen, you preferred this to the Brothers Grimsby. Am I right in saying that you oh, preferred this to the Brothers Grimsby? Yes. I, I, I mean, I would prefer sleeping in the wilderness with grizzly bears to the Brothers Grimsby, to be perfectly honest. Yes. Not sleeping with grims, grizzly bears, but sleeping in an environment <laughs> where there are grizzly bears, just to be really clear. Um yeah. Does it have a scene as good as the scene in The Brothers Grimsby, though, no. where um, start, Annabelle please, Wallace even... turns up and he has done a massive poo in the toilet and he's describing how big and thick it is. And she thinks he's describing his penis, but he's actually describing his poo. Is there a scene as good as that in this one, Helen? Yes. The, like the worst <laughs> scene in this one is better than that one. Just, oh. So four stars then for Borat's subsequent movie film. And... Let's move on now to another film that is available on streaming services and also in cinemas this weekend as well. We should point out that Ben Wheatley's Rebecca can be seen around the country on big screens, but obviously those big screens are limited. So check your local cinemas, should they still exist, for details. But it is Rebecca. It is his adaptation of the Daphne du Maurier novel, which was last adapted for the big screen 80 years ago. 
to Best Picture winning effect, no less. Benjamin, will this movie win Best Picture? <laughs> no, but it will win a good picture that you can watch on Netflix or in your local cinema right now. Um, I enjoyed uh, this take on Rebecca. I am coming at this from the perspective of somebody who has not seen Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, which I think is a position that actually quite a few people will be in as they come to this. I've not read the novel either. Yeah. Uh, So this stars Lily James as an unnamed woman who uh, meets Maxim de Winter, a tall, dark-ish very handsome stranger in uh, the French Riviera. He's grieving the death of his first wife, Rebecca. Uh, he's sort of real old, stiff upper lip uh, English country gentleman. Um, they fall in love-ish and get married. He brings her back to Mandalay, his big old country house, uh, where Lily James's unnamed Mrs. De Winter, the new Mrs. De Winter, finds herself haunted effectively in every sort of part of her new relationship by the spectre of Rebecca, uh, and also by Mrs. Danvers, who is a particularly icy housekeeper played by Kristen Scott Thomas in this version. Um, it's a real classic sort of gothic romance. Uh, if you think of things like uh, Crimson Peak and uh, the the Brontes, it's that sort of um, milieu. And and I, I really enjoyed Wheatley's version. I, I can't speak to how it relates to or differs from the Hitchcock version, but I think it had, um, I did find it genuinely atmospheric. I thought it had a real nice kind of glossy sheen, which maybe is not what people want from this story, but especially the early segment where they're falling in love and it's the French Riviera and it's gorgeous locations and she's driving the fancy car absolutely beautiful in a year where basically none of us have been on holiday you're going to want to go on holiday like (laughs) immediately it's painful in that respect Um, and then you get a really nice contrast when they return to Mandalay and it is cold and oppressive and empty and there are all these signs everywhere of Rebecca who nobody ever talks about will kind of really explain what happened to her but there are signs of her everywhere and it's only six months since she died and the sort of toll that that takes on on Lily James's Mrs. De Winter. I think Lily James is actually really good in this. I've seen some people say they think she's miscast. Again, I can't speak to other incarnations of that character, but I think she portrayed very well the sort of internal struggle or the sense that she just really doesn't fit in anywhere and, and kind of can't ground herself in Mandalay and is effectively gaslit by, uh, mm. especially by Mrs. Danvers. And um, I think there's been quite a bit of talk about this being a Ben Wheatley film and not necessarily feeling like a Ben Wheatley film is definitely a lot glossier and more traditional than especially some of the more experimental things like you think of a field in England or um, the sort of real scabrousness of, of something like Sightseers or Kill List. I think there is a link in that it is effectively a sort of a psychological excavation of of British class and you think of the British psychological excavations is what Ben Wheatley does. That's what a field in England is. And I think there are some really interesting links of why this feels like uh, a Ben Wheatley film. And in terms of if you've never read this story or seen this story before, um, there were it went to places that I didn't know that it was going to go um, in a way that I thought was really engaging and had lots of really very nice visual touches. It's not the most visually Ben Wheatley-ish film, but there are certain sequences and flourishes that you can really, mm-hmm. really feel his sort of um, visual identity coming through. So I enjoyed this a lot, but I'm aware that a lot of people are coming to this with significant 
baggage. There is another Rebecca haunting uh, this incarnation of Rebecca, which you guys can maybe speak to more. Yeah, well, I mean, look, I, I've seen the original uh, Hitchcock film, I've read the book, but that's not really so much my problem with this as the fact that I don't think it's terribly effective in trying to tell the story that I think it's trying to tell. I agree that it, it looks beautiful and there's the glossy bits and there's I, I don't have a problem with the glossiness per se. I think my problem with it is that I think you lose some of the power dynamic by having a couple who are quite close in age. I know that's not my usual complaint, but in Rebecca, there's a purpose to the age gap between Max de Winter and the second Mrs. de Winter. There's only like, I think, seven or eight years between Army Hammer and Lily James. And I think you kind of lose some of that inequality as a result. And they've tried to make her a little bit feistier, presumably to make her more likable and more relatable to a modern audience. But you you can't do that and keep the story of the novel properly. You can't do that and have the same sense of dread and the same sense of almost being erased as a person and replaced by Rebecca, which is what is supposed to be going on. Even in this adaptation, that's not just me wanting to see something that isn't here, because she has too much of herself there. And and I so it, it didn't always work for me in that sense. They're trying to make her something that she isn't, and that therefore they're in they're they're creating an imbalance in what in the imbalance that there needs to be in the story. So yeah, I I didn't think it entirely worked, which is a shame because, you know, I like everybody in it and other stuff and I think that it looked really interesting. I think he did some really interesting things visually. Um Mrs. Danvers towards the end of the film, that one bit looks incredible. The sort of family meeting in the rain in the garden I thought was brilliantly done. Just really, really lovely ideas that didn't always work for me. Uh, there was a tweet I saw I can't remember who I uh who did it, but uh, saying in terms of the casting, you need somebody older, maybe a, a Daniel Day Lewis type. You need somebody again to sort of contrast with that, um, maybe a sort of Vicky Creeps type, and then maybe for Mrs. Danvers, a sort of Leslie Manville type. And uh, <laughs> I, I think within that, even though the film is going for something different, I can understand the different dynamics that that yeah. Phantom Thread sort of casting brings. That the, the very specific relationships and and yeah, the different power plays, but within that, I can see that that is very different to what you get. Here. Yeah, I, I I just feel like I wanted Ben Wheatley's Rebecca, and this in a weird way feels less Ben Wheatley than I than I thought it would. I was on set of this. I spoke to Ben and the cast for the Empire feature that we did. So I know from speaking to him that he specifically deliberately set out not to make this a Ben Wheatley movie. It's twelve mm. for one thing. There's no swearing. Nobody gets killed with a hammer. <laughs> Listen, I should probably recuse myself from talking about this in in depth here because I was on set and I wrote the feature for Empire as well. But I but I liked it. I I liked the fact that it's not what people would expect when they hear Rebecca because I think even people who haven't necessarily read the book or have seen the Hitchcock movie, which isn't really that available. So I don't think that the ghost of the Hitchcock movie sits on in, in the background of this movie as, as, as much as you might think. But when people hear the words Rebecca and they hear gothic romance, I think they think ghost story. And I think they think that Rebecca is mm. going to be a literal ghost in the story and she's not. And what Wheatley does, I think it's quite interesting. There are three genres in one here and none of those genres is horror. As far as I can see, there no, is no, a psychological not. thriller. There is sunswept, unironic love story at the beginning. And then 
a third genre that I won't go into now for a spoiler. But we will be talking about this movie in a spoiler special. So if you are one of our subscribers to our spoiler special channel, you can, of course, join the party. Uh, all are welcome. Uh, we will be delving into that with Ben Wheatley. I spoke to him last week uh, for a big old spoiler chat. And we'll be that'll be up by the end of October. But yes, it's out right now on Netflix. We gave us one three stars, three stars for Ben Wheatley's Rebecca. Uh, and it, of course, is in cinemas as well. We don't have a lot of time, but there is a film that's going to be in cinemas and purely in cinemas this week, and it is Liam Neeson. He's back on his bullshit once again in <laughs> Honest Thief. Hells Bells, what do we think of this one? Right, so yes, this is the new um, Liam Neeson movie from uh, director Mark Williams, uh, who made The Accountant, well, he was a producer on The Accountant. but um, He's co-creator of Ozark. Well, there you go. That's a good sign. Um, and this is not a bad Liam Neeson actioner, which is not, you know, it doesn't go without saying these days. He's done a lot of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he plays Tom, who has been f- spending several years now as a thief, knocking over small town banks uh, and getting away with it clean. But when he meets Annie, who's played by Kate Walsh, and they've been dating for a while and are planning to move in together, he decides, look, this is the time I've got to, I've got to clear out my past. I can't have this hanging over me in case suddenly somebody figures this out. So he decides to turn himself in to the FBI and he calls up the FBI. Um, he calls up Agent Sam Baker, played by Robert Patrick, and says, I'm turning myself in. Come get me. And then wouldn't you know, when he tries oh, to no. hand over all his money, all his stolen loot to make good... Things go horribly wrong, and he is double-crossed, and then he has to no. go on a mission of revenge. Wow, what's going on with that? At that point, you know, you can see where things are going a little bit more. Now, I will say that this doesn't go full taken, um, and I like that about it. I think it tries to give a bit more shade and a bit more nuance to the Liam Neeson hardman character, but he is still a super competent, super dangerous, super, you know, ferocious guy uh, who you don't want to get on the wrong side of. And unfortunately for people like Jai Courtney um, and Anthony Ramos, lovely Anthony Ramos from Hamilton, uh, that's exactly where they end up. Uh, So yeah, I I, I enjoyed this. It's a competent, decent thriller. That's what it is. I I don't know how else to say it. It's not going to change your life, but for what it is, it does a decent job of it. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, Big Liam's on on good form. Mm. Jeffrey Donovan uh, is in the movie as well. With a cute and adorable dog. We should mention a cute and adorable mm, dog in adorable. this. And it tr- you're right, it tries to be a bit more reflective, a bit more of a character piece. I wanted more of, of Big Liam and Kate Walsh mm-hmm. together because they're very, very good. She's a, a delightful in this. And uh, I thought the, the there's an attempt to make the bad guys a little bit more developed and a bit more drawn out than you might normally get in this sort of movie as well. And uh, But yeah, it's always satisfying to see Big Liam turn the tables on... On Baden's. Baden's. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's not as good as Taken, but it's better than Taken 2 and Taken 3. There you go. <laughs> Praise doesn't come any higher than that. And it doesn't come any higher than this. Three stars for Honest Thief or Dishonest Cops, as I like to call it. Spoiler alert. Uh, feds, really. Uh, but yeah, this is, this is fun if you're mm. in the mood for that sort of thing and you fancy a trip to the cinema and you feel safe to do so. We have no time to review Pixie. And I'm the only person who's seen Pixie. So I will mm-hmm. say to you, the people who listen to this podcast, that it is a fun Irish set 
crime thriller. It wears its influences very much on its sleeve, Tarantino and Martin McDonough. Uh, but the cast are having a good time, led, of course, by Livia Cook, whose Irish accent to my ears was pretty damn flawless. Alec Baldwin shows up as a gun-toting priest and uh, Colomini's in it as well. <laughs> so it's it's got a nice sense of mordant, dark humour. It's a little bit like the sort of popular version, in a way, of uh, of Calm with Horses, if you saw that film that came out uh, in the summer, um, which is a very, very dark mm. Irish crime saga. This Great is movie. less dark, although bad things do happen to good and bad people in it. Um, decent dialogue, good performances. So this one, I think, is... Uh, perfectly cromulent three stars then for Pixie. And on that note, that is it for this week's Emperor Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by... Shopei Terizu, a.k.a. Elliot in Gangs of London, and he's also the star, he's fantastic in this movie, of His House, which I should also mention is on Netflix next week's fantastic horror film about two South Sudanese refugees who come to London and they're given a, a council house and that council house is infested with some sort of demon type thing that is targeting them and they can't leave the house. So, mm, all sorts of stuff going on there. It's great. I gave it four stars. We'll talk about it next week's show, but it's out in cinemas this weekend, out on Netflix next. So if you fancy a scare, go along and see his house in cinemas this weekend, again, if you feel safe to do so. So we'll be joined by, by Chopin. He's going to be on the podcast. Very excited about that. And we may also be joined by the directors of the fantastic Irish animated movie, Wolf Walkers, Tom Moore and Ross Stewart. So that is a fantastic film. So join us for that if you can. But until then, until we meet again, until a auspicious occasion, it is, of course, goodbye and farewell to a man about to dive into a West Wing, well, stupor, coma, if you will, is James Dyer. Isn't that is? Porcus Irumabo is fuckpig in Latin. Wow. Are you going to go and scream that in a, in a cathedral? I am. <laughs> <laughs> it is goodbye, of course, as well, from Ben to Winter, Mr. Ben Travis. Goodbye. That's me being Good. spooky and mysterious in my English castle. Goodbye. Goodbye. It's goodbye from Sandra Jessica Helen. Oh, is it Borat thing? Is it a Borat, it was a Borat thing? thing. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's goodbye from Helen O'Hara. A valet. That's goodbye in Latin. Oh, that's nice, isn't it? What's toodaloo in Latin, Helen? I, I don't believe that there's a direct translation, James. Nonsense. <laughs> Toodaloo-um. Swap everything for Vs. Toodaloo-um. And it is goodbye from me. I am off to get ready for next week's show, which is going to be extra specially spooky, taking place as it does one day before Halloween. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye-bye. No, Chris, come on. Three times in one show, this is just not acceptable. Good lord. <gasps>